You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. 8-Bit Test Pit is here to put Archaeogaming on the map. Hosted by key players in the Archaeogaming world, 8-Bit Test Pit sets to explain the weird and wonderful connections between the study of our past and the virtual worlds we like to explore. 8-Bit Test Pit breaks the field of Archaeogaming down into three accessible formats. The main campaign is the monthly show featuring a panel discussion led by Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone on a number of issues and topics, all of which revolve around the intersection of archaeology and gaming. Everything from coding practices to ethics in and about the game reality. Dug Up content is bite-sized 15-minute episodes released every six weeks, filled to the brim with information covering key terms and concepts in and about the field of archaeogaming. These will inform and educate in the time it takes to load your saved game. Archaeo Deathmatch. Two archaeogamers enter, one archaeogamer leaves. When a field is new, disagreements are going to happen. Here in the virtual arena, two archaeologists debate a topic related to archaeogaming, hosted every five weeks, or is needed. Archaeogaming covers not only the study of archaeology and video games, but also the study of games as material culture. Some of our hosts you already may know. Andrew Reinhardt, who was featured in the documentary Atari Game Over, Tara Copplestone, who studies how games are made through an archaeological lens, and Megan Dennis, a PhD candidate at the University of York who is studying ethics in video games. Plus, many more interested and insightful players in the Archaeogaming world are ready to load. The show is hosted and produced by Sarah Head of Archaeofantasies fame and Tristan Boyle, content creator of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the first episode of 8-Bit Test Pit Main Campaign. I'm your GM for the night, Sarah Head. And I'm joined today by Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone. Today we're talking about what archaeogaming is and a little bit about the history of the up-and-coming field. We'll talk about why archaeogaming is important, and then we'll delve into the No Man's Sky survey, which will be launching along with the game in August. So find your dice and get ready to roll initiative. Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the main campaign, part of the 8-Bit Test Pit podcast. I'm your host today, Sarah, and I am joined with Go Megan. Um, I'm Megan Dennis. And Tara. Tara Copplestone. Copplestone? Yes, Copplestone. Copplestone. <laughs> Andrew? Andrew Reinhardt. There we go. Uh, today we're getting a history of what archaeogaming is and what we hope to get out of the field of archaeogaming as it develops. So who would like to start with that? Archaeogaming generally can be defined in five words, which is basically the archaeology in and of video games. So treating video games as their own physical artifacts, their own part of material culture or the archaeological record of the present day, um, and also considering the archaeology within virtual spaces. Um, how do machines create material culture? Um, how do people interact with the virtual world in relationship to built environments and things like that? So. There are, uh, there are a ton of, of little things to, to consider, everything from uh, looking at hardware and soft video games to uh, considering games as archaeological sites and artifacts uh, to archaeological reception. Um, you know, how do people perceive archaeology and archaeologists, um, you know, within those virtual worlds? What do we do with, with looting and how does that work? Um, so you have ethics involved in there as well. And it's, it's really grown um, since uh, I think Ethan Wattrell at Michigan State started publishing on this back in 2002. Um, and we've seen that grow um, until the uh, creation of uh, Tara's blog, his blog, blog, and Sean Grimm's as well. Um, with, uh, you know, basically having a public-facing side to further explore um, what it means to do archaeology within a digital environment, specifically games. Megan, you want to add to that? Um, I think Andrew covered a lot of it. Uh, I, I know when I think of it, um, I talk about it as doing archaeology within immaterial space that happens to be game spaces. And the intersection between how that immaterial space and the material space in which the player resides, um, how they cross back and forth, and what sort of material culture comes out of that sort of intersection. So it, it can get very theoretical, but it can also be um, straight 
what we think of as, as field work, actually going into a game and conducting survey, conducting innovation, conducting cultural rewards. Um, uh, so there's a lot of, lot of different ways to do this. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed as we've watched this sort of grow and become something that other people take seriously enough to give us a podcast um, is uh, how there's so many different ways that we're all approaching this right now. Okay. Tara, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I guess uh, my sort of particular take is how us as archaeologists can use games to construct our arguments about the past and to kind of use the affordances of, of the video game media form to kind of think about and actually do archaeology as well, um, as well as representing it. Uh, and then sort of another strand to that is to go uh, into the field, so so it may seem, uh, and talk to the people who are making the games uh, at the game studios, uh, the designers, the developers, the artists, the sound people, the everybody involved, and think about how, how are they mediating with archaeology and how does that transcribe to what we see? How do these levels of, of code and people and industry interface with what we're doing and how uh, we use those things as archaeologists to further our discipline. Yeah, that's that's one, uh, Tara, that's a great point. That's one of the things um, that I've always been interested in uh, as an archaeologist, especially coming from a classical tradition of, of studying ancient Greece, for example. We never have the opportunity to talk to the makers of the pottery that we find from the 6th century BC. And mm. as contemporary archaeologists, we really have access uh, that we've never had before historically, you know, in our field to be able to talk to the makers and ask these questions archaeological questions that we would love to add, you know, to people living 2,000 years ago. So, so here we are, and, and how does that inform our perception of, uh, of the material culture that's being produced right now? Exactly. I think this particularly comes into play, and we'll talk a bit later about it, but with uh, things like No Man's Sky, where there is this procedural generation and this, like, uh, real use of code to do things that aren't uh, applicable in other ways, and how we can kind of see that relationship between code and outcome and maker and how we can actually like investigate that space and how we could then apply that to what we do physically in the field. Some interesting kind of, uh, not a theoretical, but methodological applications for a lot of the stuff. Yes. So, uh, Andrew, you mentioned uh, that someone had been doing this back in 2002. Can you give us a little bit of, get just kind of fill the history of the development of the field of archaeogaming in a little right. bit? Um, um, I, I can do a little bit of that, sure. Um, in, in doing research for the archaeology book that I'm working on, uh, um, I, I was trying to find the Ur document, which which is talking about the archaeology of video games. And, and the, one of the earliest that I found was by Ethan Wattrall, um, and he goes by Captain Primate on, on Twitter. Um, and this was a publication, it was an article for the uh, Society of American Archaeology Journal um, that he'd done. And it's basically exploring, you know, how how games uh, can be interpreted uh, archaeologically. Um, you uh, you fast forward a little bit, and you've got blogs, very old blogs, especially one that that Sean Grant involved with called Play the Past. It's a playthepast.org, where you're taking a look at video games as um, documents of various histories. So you're taking a look at like uh, Sid Meier's Civilization, or you're taking a look at at, at other games that are set in an imagined or real historical past, and how do these games arrive at their goals? You know, how do they use history to communicate something? And it gets into serious gaming, it gets into education and edutainment. Um, and, and so you have that blog, which has been going for 10 years, I guess. Um, and so there's real depth of content there. You've got folks like uh, Colleen Morgan, who's currently at the University of York, you know, as are Tara and, and Megan. Um, where uh, you know she's writing about uh, not only you know the Wii version of, of Tomb Raider, for example, where you're using controllers as your actual excavation tools, um, to really doing a lot of work with Second Life, whether it's 3D reconstruction or or taking a look at uh, uh, built environments and a culture within that virtual space. Even though Second Life's not necessarily a game, uh, it does have virtual environment is akin to a lot of other open worlds that we use as play spaces. Um, you fast forward a little bit to maybe 2013, and this is, I think, when Tara's getting her blog started. Maybe it was a little earlier. Um, my blog, archaeogaming.com, was in 2013. And I think all of us kind of came to the, to the same portmanteau of uh, archaeogaming uh, at about the same time. 
um, which is really cool. And we kind of found each other. And, and you know, I thought I was doing this by myself. And Tara was thinking, oh, she was working in a vacuum. And, and, and uh, you know, there are lots of us who've kind of come to the woodwork thinking about the same thing. All of a sudden, we've got an Archeo Gaming Collective. Um, in 2014, we did the Atari Excavation, which is real-world archaeology of video games, which hadn't happened before. Um, and uh, then we started seeing conferences. Um, you had, uh, um, you know, conferences uh, in Sweden uh, for Archeo Gaming. Uh, you had conferences. Uh, you know, the the most recent one is by the Value Project at the University of Leiden, um, which uh, was all about Archeo Gaming, and it's now being treated uh, as a serious thing in the academy. Uh, it's amazing. That's pretty cool. Was anyone involved with the the ET dig? Um, yeah, I was. I played lead archaeologist. Oh, nice. <laughs> on the ET dig. I played. Um, so, what were your stats? Um, wow, <laughs> I, I, I was I was an elite. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, f f far from it. But but yeah, if you if you watch um, Atari Game Over, um, the uh, documentary, you can you can actually watch the dig happen. It was more of a salvage excavation and 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 uh, kind of a media circus. But at the same time, we were trying to do some real science. Yeah, and, it, and everyone was really fascinated by the discovery of all of those. I still don't understand why they just buried them. Like, why wouldn't you burn them or something? But anyway. <laughs> it, was, it's che it was cheaper for them to bury. This is weird. I heard some of them still played. No. Um, we actually, this is a, a bit of a digression, um, but uh, uh, we, we as we were digging, we, we were pulling out cartridges that we that were in excellent condition, and then we actually had a twenty six hundred. We had a pair of twenty six hundreds hooked up to old school television sets awesome. at the side of the trench, um, and so, would, so there was a runner, and they would run from the from the side of the trench with the cartridge over to the to the console, and they would plug it in, they dust it off, they plug it in. No, all right, let's try another one. Um, and so none of them happened to none of them were able to be played. However, um, during during the auctions that the city of Alamogordo was running. The uh, there was one buyer, and I've forgotten his name now, but but he's a uh, he's a tech and also a gamer, and he was able to buy one of the ET games that was recovered, and he was able to rehab the chip or the wafer in order to play in his twenty six hundred, and that's the only game out of the expedition that was able to be played, and it's only because he did some TLC to it after the fact. That's pretty cool, though. So Tara, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in the past with the? Uh... Archeo Gaming, since you are all coming about at the same time, can you tell us a little bit about your work to begin with? Yeah, definitely. So I, I come from a bit of a different background. I come from IT, or well, computer science, and uh, I got dragged into archaeology. Uh, <laughs> was it, was it kicking and screaming? It, originally, yes, but then I got to go on a couple of excavations and I was hooked. I was like, this seems like a way better idea than sitting at a day all day. That's awesome. um, but anyway, so I was doing agent-based modeling, um, and I'd also had a background doing uh, like semi-professional gaming for a year. Um, so I, I was doing both at the same time, nice. and I kind of came around to this idea that video games as a media form are kind of quite special. Um, and at about the time uh, that I was about to start my master's, Andrew's blog kicked off uh, in full swing. And I was fascinated this, by this idea that we could make arguments or see archaeological arguments through, uh, through games. Um, and I thought, well, there's a lot. There's a lot of course going on about what is or isn't good archaeology in a game. Um, and I was kind of curious as to, well, like why? Why does this thing? Like why does this whole process happen? What what else could we be doing? Why do these things occur? Um, so I thought I'd go out into the world and, and uh, talk talk to people who are uh, making making the games and playing them. Um, but I sort of uh, came at it from the approach, which was was that media or that games are a media form, and that archaeology has this like long, long relationship, a uh, very tumultuous relationship, using various different media forms, like whether that's like plain text or films or appropriating things like Second Life for their own nefarious purposes, <laughs> uh, all the way through to video games now as well. Um, so I, I guess that's my kind of take on it, and I think that Andrew brought up a really good point earlier. Uh, about how we've been using games a lot or like game-based technologies. So we've used things like Unity as a game engine, but we haven't necessarily used it to make games. We've used them for other things. We've used Second Life, but not as a game. We've used it for other things. There's kind of turning no, point. Like, out... Yeah, exactly. Very much so. But there was this real turning point around like 2013, 2014, uh, where things kind of switched from it just being like, oh, 
uh, we're just going to use these things that other people are doing to suddenly being like, oh, let's critically actually look at games as a media. Let's actually build upon this. And I think that uh, my research kind of comes in from the, the, the media side and the making side. Uh, and then we have like Andrew and Megan who are doing this amazing work thinking about, well, why are we making things? This, how does it talk about other things? And I'm sure in the future, there'll be these other great discourses that, are, that come up as well as part of that. Megan, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing too? Sure. Um, I got into this because I was doing field archaeology uh, and I was doing contract work in the States and I was doing Maya archaeology, which is what my training background is in, in um, Belize. And I was encountering lots of looted contexts. Um, and, and it was one of those situations where it was the conflict of the right people together at the right time. Um, and I had started talking to uh, Andrew and Tara online, um, and I was literally in the jungle, uh, and Donna Yates showed up. Um, and so she and I got to talking about um, looting in the antiquities market, sitting around in the jungle, um, while I was you know, also using the rigged uh, cell network to like check my Twitter, um, and start putting these ideas together about why is it that these behaviors become um, these behaviors that that we know as archaeologists are unacceptable? Why do they become the narrative? Why is that what people know about archaeology? Why is unethical behavior and looting and destroying sites? Why is that what people believe uh, in a lot of parts of the world that we do? Um, and I was putting that together with my secondary job, which was doing community management for an MMO um, and kind of looking at how players were thinking about these things in the games that we were making. Uh, and it, it all just kind of came together for me to decide to look at representations and look at um, how the way the way in which we're perceived as professionals. Uh, and the way in which uh, avocational archaeology is perceived and the way in which ethical and unethical decisions are showing up in these games. And how does that influence what we think of ourselves as archaeologists? I know, you know, we, we Indian is a bad rap, but I think a lot of us come to it from that. So now we have this generation that is not necessarily film-based, but is game-based. They get their ideas about the world from what they see in video games. Um, how does that play into how they're feeling about archaeology? Um, and does participation in these bad behaviors in games lead to either an allowance of or a direct participation in bad behaviors outside of games? Uh, and I got fortunate uh, in that uh, this all came together at the right time so that I could actually look at this as a serious academic study instead of, you know, what I did when I wasn't digging. Uh, so I, I feel really lucky that we all came together at the right time for this. So we could effectively say that you three, along with Sean and maybe Colleen Morgan, are actually the pioneers of this field then. I feel very second wave already. But, okay, um, yeah. But uh, I say that, yeah, these guys are definitely the ones who put it out there so that we could start to have a second wave. And at this point, I'm, I'm already seeing like third wave people who I'm having to tell them, like, you need to go back and look at this stuff because you're you're trying to design projects and you don't even know what was happening two or three years ago. Um, but uh, that's that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, yeah. with the with the first wave, you have people kind of you know toying around with the idea of, of um, archaeology and and video games and how they might relate. I, I our group we're we're coming across with uh, developing some kind of method and theory, you know, to understand what it is that we're doing. With um, the third wave, maybe the new wave. I don't know, um, uh, or no wave. Who knows. Uh, Dark wave, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I was going to go there. You've got a lot of people who have interests in a particular game, a particular series, or, or you know, taking a look at, at a single question as opposed to a bunch of questions. 
uh, and running with that. So it's been interesting to watch this tree grow from the trunk, you know, to the branches and now out to, to these tiny little budding limbs. Tara, did you want to add anything? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that, that like, there's a long history of people who have, who have been looking at, uh, like, how we can construct things using game engines. Like, one that springs to mind very strongly is Eric Champion, who's done, like, wonderful, yeah. wonderful work looking at virtual reality, augmented reality, game-based stuff for pedagogy. But it's kind of really been, in, like, literally in this last year or so that things have, like, really condensed and solidified to being, like, arguing is a serious discipline. Um, and it's not a serious discipline. It's one with very far-reaching consequences outside of academia. Um, as Megan said, with, with engaging with the general public, not just with teaching them, but also with uh, how we can structure our discipline internally and everything. It's, it's become this, this like, real powerhouse, I guess, where we can actually all latch into and do stuff from rather than just disparate people kind of putting things out into the world and hoping for the best. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to go to break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about this developing field. The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech Podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking about Archaeogaming because that is the point of our show. And I would like to talk about some games that have had, uh, I guess, the field of archaeogaming applied to them from the past or something quite recent. I, I know Megan's been doing some work. Uh, Tara, did you apply? Is there a specific game that you can use as an example that you have used some principles from archaeogaming in? Uh, well, most of my work focuses around um, making games or analyzing how games are made. So I've okay. worked on games, um, both commercial and non-commercial. Yeah. So Andrew, what uh, what games have you applied in the past? Uh, Archeo gaming principles to like. Um, I've, I've I've done a few. Um, I remember when I was starting to, at the very beginning to think about Archeo gaming back in in 2013. Um, I was immediately drawn to World of Warcraft as well as. Uh, the Elder Scrolls universe, a specific oh, Elder Scrolls Five Skyrim. Yes, yeah, so uh, God help me, I love that game too. And and just you know, I was playing as an Imperial, which was awesome because right out of the gate, I'm working with classical reception. <laughs> that is to say, how is this game appropriated? You know, the the armor and the culture and and uh, the mores of Imperial Rome, and what does that mean? Um, and because I'm a big pothead, that is to say, I like pottery. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. I, I, I do. Sure. Oh my gosh, my thesis was in pottery. Uh, so, <laughs> so I was looking at the pottery typologies um, and how they changed. So you know, was a was a bowl look like um, in Skyrim compared to a bowl from a similar culture in Oblivion compared to Daggerfall. Um, and looking at all these games in the series and watching the typology and the shapes and the forms change over time and trying to determine what's going on with the design aspect. So that's that's one thing. I think most recently, I mean, prior to going into No Man's Sky in August, um, I played Hearthstone, which is this free-to-play card game um, that Blizzard put out. And they had an expansion pack called uh, League of Explorers. And you have all of these fedora or pith-wearing characters. And I, I was really interested to see how archaeology was represented or interpreted in the card game and, and what was going on. And so um, I found that the game... It's not even parodying um, archaeological tropes. It seems to have been developed to interpret archaeology from pop culture, which in turn interprets archaeology from what real, real, real archaeologists do and how they appear and what they say, and takes a real colonial approach or looks at it through a colonial lens. Um, so, you know, being able to look at archaeological reception, which is a big part of archaeo gaming, was important, and Hearthstone, that, that tons of people play. Um, was a, a really good way to get a feel for how a developer is looking at archaeology and how players are looking at archaeology, not necessarily derived from archaeologists themselves, but specifically from pop culture tropes that exist in media and using that as the way to inform the game. Megan, can you talk about the work that you've been doing? Sure. Uh, I did 
initially a lot of work with uh, Uncharted, um, and specifically I was looking at, at uh, Uncharted 3. I have not played 4 yet because I've set it as a case study for my dissertation, so I'm just like waiting and it's killing me. <laughs> um, it's going to be like six months again before I can play it. Um, so I did, I did work with Uncharted. Um, I did some work with the Tomb Raider series. I did, uh, recently work with, um, Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, and I did a lot of work with Curious Expedition, which is a smaller game that I think has done some really interesting things with, um, ethics and archaeology and representations of past people, including real archaeologists. What was the name of that game again? Uh, it is The Curious Expedition. Okay. Oh, yeah. Gotta love that game. Yeah, it's so great. Um, and right now, um, I am going back and playing through the first two Uncharted games again, and, and I am trying to get my hands on some early games, um, really early stuff, uh, arcade stuff, to start working on, on really early stuff and figure out how we're, how we, we can trace it basically through history. So before I, before I attack uh, Tara again, mm -hmm. what have you guys found? Like what, uh, Andrew, you were talking about the uh, pottery typology, but my initial question there is, you know, how do you know that you're looking at typology and how do you distinguish that between obviously the graphics for the games in yes. the Elder Scrolls have improved since, you know, the first Elder Scroll game came out to all the way up to, I think Skyrim was the last release. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Discounting Elder Scrolls online. And I think they're doing another one. I mean, they're remixing Sky, uh, Skyrim. They are remixing Skyrim. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, and then uh, ESO, and then I guess they're getting ready to do a new one too. Um, but that's just hearsay right now, so don't quote me on that. But, but uh, you know, you've got to think to to the technology and the use creation of technology in the real world as well as in the virtual space. And I find that these two things are in parallel, although the timeline is much more accelerated uh, when you're looking at things in a virtual space or in a digital environment. Um, so, so yeah, you, you go from game to game, and because you're working with with uh, uh, you know everything from you know eight bit, sixteen bit, thirty two bit, sixty four bit, and so on. Um, you know the graphics get better and better and better, and the tools to make those graphics get better and better and better as we approach photorealism. And now there's this big kick with retro gaming, so things look old even though they're very new, like if you Undertale. But but in any case, um, you compare that to the history of, of of pottery or of any technology where they look really grotty and really ugly, but they serve a function of holding things you know right and then you look at a bowl you know 100 years later 200 years later and and uh, they have improved the technology it still has the same function but it looks better and it feels better um and they've applied decoration and everything like that and so you know you're looking at these things in the games and the designers are doing best with the technology that they have and in fact their needs i would assume drive the question of new technology to make this better or easier. Um, and so, you know, the same is true of things in the real world, which is a real tie-in. And it's more, I think it gets beyond analogy. Um, it, it's, it's how people make things. And a game is a thing, even if it's virtually downloaded, it's still produced by people. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes these uh, archaeological artifacts that do change over time and hopefully improve with, with quality. Megan, um, I'm going to ask you about ethics real quick, and then I'm going to ask okay. Tara about, because we're talking about the user end of the game here. Tara's focused more on the creator end. So let's talk about ethics in the game, and then I'm going to ask Tara about archaeology and the making of games? Well, when I'm looking at ethics and archaeogaming, I'm looking at two different things. I'm looking at ethics as they occur within the game narrative, which is, do you have the option to play a game that may involve archaeology or involve artifacts? Have the option to play that ethically? Um, and I'm also looking at, as archaeogaming researchers, what should our policies of ethics be as we approach this new field of research? How do we talk to the communities of players? How do we talk to the developers? Should we be talking to the players and the developers in what ways? Um, what sort of access to our data should we be providing to the communities that we interact with? 
how should we be interacting with those communities when we play a game? Um, so it gets someone into photography and there's a lot of people who've done really great work on researching in digital spaces. And now we just have to kind of twist it to figure out how it's gonna work in a game space. Um, so there's those two threads of ethics as I see it in archeogaming, um, narrative and researcher and figuring out how you act as an ethical researcher while perhaps playing and researching in a space where you can't behave ethically as a character or as an, an actor within that game, that's a place that I'm very interested in looking at. And does it influence what our data is if we have to behave unethically within the narrative to collect data that we want to use ethically as a research tool. Now, when you're saying acting ethically within the narrative, I mean, obviously yes. ethics in the outside world, those are mostly defined-ish. Yes. But when we're talking about ethics inside of a game space, um, what do we mean when we're saying that? Like in the games, give us an example of in a game when you have to act unethically. Um, all right, so a real big obvious one uh, is let's let's look at the Tomb Raider games, specifically the two most recent Tomb Raider games. Within those games, you are presented very frequently with artifacts um, and you have to interact with them and Lara Croft in these iterations of the games has this extra twist put in and that she actually is an archaeology student, so she's credentialed and, and that becomes an issue of expertise and how expertise should be treated. But what do, what do we do with those objects? In some of the scenes in the games, it becomes very clear that when you interact with the object that you are taking the object and taking it out of context and removing it. In some scenes, it's not clear whether you are, and in some scenes, it's clear that you are leaving it there. And what does it mean for us to interact with those artifacts and to get that extra information within the narrative, either pushes the narrative of the game along or gives us extra background information or acts as flavor within the world? Um, what does it mean to, to have that information knowing that we're not necessarily obtaining it in a way that if we were an archaeologist in that situation, we would not find acceptable. Um, same thing with treatment of human remains. We treat human remains in video games in ways that we would absolutely never treat them in the field. Um, we would not handle uh, human remains the same way, we would not dispose of them the same way, we would not be really so cavalier with them. But in games, you know, you wander through um, mortuary spaces and mess up mortuary spaces and, and throw bones around and knock skulls over and nobody says anything about it. Um, so that's what I mean by the narrative space. Um, things that are part of the storyline or that you need to advance the story to keep playing the game or to level up in the game that if you were an actual archaeologist, you would not do because you probably get some sort of violation. <laughs> so taking that into consideration, um, Tara, how do or how much of that do game creators take into consideration? Like, do they do they think about ethics when they're creating a game or is it what can I do to make this game the most awesome game? And if that means I have to throw a couple skulls around, then hey, so be it. <laughs> Well, you find that a lot of the people who are working on the ground, I'm going to talk about a company to start with. So these are like the... You're, you're going to talk about which, which company? Those, like smash, uh, AAA companies in general. I can't talk about specifics due no, to non-disclosure agreements for my stuff. But um, so like big, big, big companies that produce like the headline stuff. The people who are working on the ground, so like your narrative designers, um, your level designers, your, even your programmers, your, your sound people, they're very, very conscious of these morals and ethics and these like, because everything that they create in this game world is deliberate, right? Like you can't just, things don't just happen. You have to create everything. So everything is a deliberate decision they made. The problem is they're drawing from what has happened in games previously and they're drawing from what's publicly available. And there's not anything out there at the moment that really says in an accessible way, how do archaeologists actually deal with this stuff? And we can kind of get a sense, right? Like being archaeologists, we think it's a given. 
And in the general world, as you work around, you're kind of like, well, I get that I probably shouldn't just rifle through the space. But <laughs> that, that's how a lot of the video games at their very, very like uh, first iterations, they relied on very, very simplistic mechanics to, to achieve because the process those mechanics about like Rob to get more more gear to get more power-ups that has stayed with us as we go on for want of better examples and the other side that drives is that games uh, at this triple a commercially viable level operate in the sphere where, where they have to make money right and the way that they kind of think about this is well if games have sold well in the past well then why would we do something different and making a case by saying well that's not how we do it in archaeology is not really enough to kind of say we should do it differently. There has to be a real sort of ground to what mechanics we make. Would that be more interesting for a player? What else does that tell us? So people are very receptive to these ideas, um, but it's just we we lack a lot of the groundwork, which is where I think Megan's research is so great because it's going to sort of start actually pushing a bit of this boundary. By redefining ethics as they should be used in a narrative. And you think... Yeah. That, but do you think maybe... And, and here we can pull in some actual, like... Uh, other like archaeology field uh, controversy. Do you think making actual archaeology more accessible to the public, like open access, do you think by having research data and final papers and that kind of stuff, uh, obviously things that would not jeopardize a site or a set of artifacts, but making the open access, do you think that would help uh, game developers create a more ethical game? A absolutely, on one level. Uh, the, the other side to this is that we need to produce material which is relevant and like makes sense to games. So like games yeah. are their own media form. They have their own foundations and their own ways of, of making arguments. We as archaeologists are used to writing in text. Uh, we've moved on a bit. We use photos now. We sometimes use, use video. <laughs> we use GIS. Like we, we, We're slowly you know, making these part of our normative practice. But we don't write interactive or multilinear or reflexively or in these kind of ways which games excel in. So the problem then comes that as a game developer, they're being asked to take these narratives, these very structured, linear, formal narratives that we write and translate them without actually knowing that much about our practice because they're not archaeologists. In the same way that like we're not brain surgeons, we can't expect to make a lot of these higher theoretical leaps. So there's kind of a two-way process here, right? Like you, we need for, for, to have better games. We need people to be receptive to it. Or I say better games, different games. We need people to be in the game development side to be receptive to this. But us as archaeologists also need to uh, acknowledge how we are producing our narratives and, and how we can make those accessible in a way which makes sense to these people. So when we actually talk, um, and there's a, a couple of examples when I was working at various studios where they would actually bring in archaeologists to, to, to be advisors. The problem was the archaeologists were speaking archaeology in this like very <laughs> formal up and down way. And the game designers just like, what are these people talking about? I have no idea. And so you just end up with these like ships crossing in the night. So it's a two-way thing. We need to think in games as much as game developers need to be receptive to all this great open access stuff that uh, we're also starting to throw out there. So I think. I think we have the opportunity to do that now when we talk, like we mentioned earlier about generationally, that we have a generation of, of gamers now, of soft gamers. I think that the fact that we have gamers who are archaeologists and archaeologists who are gamers, and now we have this sub-discipline of archaeology, this archaeogaming that looks at this in, in an academic way and in a methodological way and in a field-applicable way, that we have the opportunity right now to make that crossover statement, um, to have people embed into industry and have industry interact with archaeologists and have finally these two groups of people effectively speaking a common language of game and can, can use their expertise on both sides to get the good stuff across so that we start seeing better representations. Well, and yeah, it, it I, seems I, like this kind of thing, thinking in game as a as an academic or just as an archaeologist, it seems like that would be a much better way for us to learn to start communicating to the general public as a whole as well. Because I know that I have shared on, on my feed now two different 3D interactive uh, uh, archaeological sites. One of them is the, the cave in which the, the hobbits were found. 
And the other one is just a panoramic view of one of the Egyptian sites. And I know that the cave one where you can actually, you can't like click and interact with anything, but you can go into this 3D space and you can look up and you can look down and you can move around in it. As opposed to the panoramic where you can just kind of spin around and pan up and pan down, but you're in a fixed position. I know the cave one was a lot more enjoyed by the average person in my feed as opposed to the panoramic view where people are like, eh, it's cool, but you know, I've got pictures or I can look at a magazine. The cave one was put together via data points and was made to be a 3D interactive space where the panoramic, though neat to look at, but both of those are received much better than if I just put up a description of something. Yeah, yeah well, I, th I think there's something in that, which is that uh, games in general, I mean, like we think of them as these entertainment goods and as like communicative tools sometimes. But the way that we experience games, like agency, like that you can make decisions and that you can have, like your choices can have impact on how you experience that world is, is actually how we experience the world that we live in, right? So I think there's something quite powerful about the rhetoric that you can make in a game or in, even in something just like an interactive experience versus how we write text, which is a very formal, very guided way of, of navigating archaeology. And I think it's more immediately accessible because people are used to doing that. Um, so Megan sort of mentioned digital literacy is something which is coming through a lot more now. And that's an important step as well for people learning how to use these things and how to operate in that space. But as, as digital literacy improves both for people to make these things as well as to navigate them, uh, I definitely think that, that your point about them being, if not easier, then definitely being able to make different arguments as well on top of what we already do is, is very valid. Andrew, did you want to add something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what Tara uh, has said is, is is quite true. I wanted to add also that um, you know, with working with with games and, or creating digital spaces, um, if we pay attention as archaeologists to actively engaging public, making things engaging, making them interactive, and not forgetting the human element. I mean, archaeology is a human yeah. science. Um, we interact with things. We're interested in things. And we're, I think we're more interested in the people who use these things and who made them than anything else. And this goes back to uh, you know, one of my new favorite authors is Cornelius Holtorf. And uh, in his books, uh, From Stonehenge to Las Vegas, and also in his book, um, uh, uh, Archaeology is a Brand, you know, he is talking about how archaeologists can make the science a little more approachable to the general public and to, them and to engage them. Um, and one of the things that's coming out, and we'll talk about this in the next section on No Man's Sky and the archaeology survey, is the fact that we'll open this up to the crowd after we figure out some best practices. And people are just ready to do it. Um, they can't wait to help. They want to learn about archaeology and they want to learn by doing. Okay. Well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, we will move on to the very exciting No Man's Sky uh, survey that's coming up. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. And we are back and we are going to talk about the upcoming survey in the launch of the No Man's Sky game, which uh, until Pokemon launched was one of the most anticipated games of the year. And it probably still is one of the most anticipated games. Um but it's, uh, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about what No Man's Sky is and why this is the one you've decided to target for this particular survey? You bet. Um, I've been looking forward to this game for about three years now. Um, and th th basically, this is like, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, this is what we've been training for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything else. Uh, every, everything else, all these other games that we kind of play around in are the product of direct input from design. Um, you know, somebody writes a game, we play the game. Great. 
Now, No Man's Sky is special because it takes um, what's known as procedural generation, which is not a new concept. I mean, we've had procedural generation all the way back, back to, you know, flight, um, you know, for programming classes, you know, to games like Elite, you know, which is from the 1980s, which basically says, here are some rules that are governed by code. And every time you log in, the game settings up a little bit differently, but according to the set of rules that have been established by the developer. Okay, great. Now, No Man's Sky is a universe-sized game yeah. <laughs> that's like one-to-one -one scale. Um, so there are apparently a quintillion worlds. Uh, you can visit all, all of them, um, and they're all different, and you know, in, in either really big ways or really subtle ways. And because there are over 800,000 lines of code, you have the chance of seeing some really startling things. Um, you know, the developers, uh, Hello Games, based in Guildford, UK, um, said that they were sending drones into the universe as they were building this thing, and, and the drones were reporting back, or the probes were reporting back some weird stuff, like houses walking around on legs. Um, and so you know, you've got that to look forward to as the end product of how the code is coming forward, how the rules combining to create uh, uh, what, are, what is known as an emergent behavior. Um, part of the real interest for me, and I think the sole driving interest for me, I, I know that others have other research questions that they're bringing to the game, but for me, um, I want to see how machine-created culture actually works. There is sentient life in the game. There are going to be built environments in the game. There are going to be things to interact with that are not natural, that are not made by nature. Um, there's going to be geomorphology. There, there's be you know houses and technology stuff like that that appear based on rules and what does that mean we haven't seen it to this at this size before ever um and so you're dealing with three with a couple of levels developers writing code the code interacting with the universe the players interacting with the code in the universe and creating other behaviors as the rules combine to create something that is unanticipated um, i dream about this stuff all the time and to me <laughs> That's what archaeogaming is. Um, it's a creation of new artifacts in a new space that, that didn't exist before. Um, and to me, you know, you go into the real universe and you've got all this dark matter and nobody knows what it is. I'll tell you what it is in a game. It's code. You know, all this extra space, all, all this stuff we're flying around in, it's code. It's behaving in strange ways. So I figured, you know what? This game is so big and it's bigger than me. Maybe I should get a bunch of archaeology friends together who play and we'll survey it. And we're going to do it like a real logical survey. We're going to base it on real-world archaeological surveys that have been done in the past. And we're going to set up our data collection forms. And we're going to video. We're going to photograph. And we're going to treat this as a survey, you know, as an archaeological survey. If we want to stop and excavate some units, um, great. Um, but uh, we want to explore the universe and maybe try to divine what the algorithms are behind, you know, what's going on, and to see uh, what we could document with uh, the material culture created, you know, by math, basically. That's that's a simplification of it, but that's what I see. Now, Megan, you're you're involved with this. Yeah. So, and and I remember when Andrew put up a, di a couple different sections uh, that one of the sections was ethics, and you were super excited about that. So what are you hoping to get out of no out of this No Man's Sky survey uh, towards your research in ethics? What are you hoping to get out of all of this? Um, I have been really excited because Catherine Flick um, has helped us to create an ethics policy for the team um, and for our research. And I'm really interested in seeing how that ethics policy plays out for us as we're actually conducting the survey. Um, because that's one of the things that in my dissertation research that I'm trying to devise is some sort of overarching archaeogaming digital ethics policy for us. Um, the secondary thing I'm really interested in looking at is because this is a complete universe with so many different ways that it can go and so many different sentient potentially sentient races that we can encounter. Um, I'm interested in figuring out how can we create an archaeology from scratch that is ethical, that is not based in colonial practice, uh, that is not based in implied or direct racism, um, 
and and I want to see how that works. And I I think that it's possible. In my heart of heart, I believe that we can do this. Um, so I want to see it play out in a digital form, so that we can then take away from that and find ways to adapt our practice within the material world to be better at what we do. So you're actually looking for to recreating the field. Yeah, yeah, I am. That, that's an interesting take on that. Tara, are you joining us on the survey? I guess I, I definitely will be. Uh, what are you hoping to get out of it, maybe? Uh, so my, my interest is, uh, at the moment, my PhD research looks at uh, how we build games from the ground up to make arguments. Uh, and I'm really interested to see if it can work the other way. So whether we can basically apply archaeological methods to then look at how games were made. So basically doing archaeology of of the game itself. So we're cataloging the different apologies of certain things, making observations about where they occur, whether we can get back to the algorithm or whether we can get back to understanding at least in part the algorithm which generates these things, um, and, and basically doing some tests about how we could try to go about um, understanding that system both computationally and archaeologically. So intersection of, of computer science and archaeology stuff. Yes. So you're looking at the artifacts, you're looking at the game as an artifact then? Uh, essentially, yeah, and I'm looking at it uh, basically as everything being hinged upon on this kind of like structural frame of the code and how things that we see visually manifest, so like the aesthetic, the sound, how those can all interplay back to this this deep structure. Because um, in archaeology, we, we, we have these theories that kind of think about these, these structures that uh, dictate or which um, push or pull or influence or in other ways kind of um, structure, one for a better word, how how things happen, how change occurs, why things happen. Uh, and in games, those happen due to code, and we know why that happens. But can we actually observe these things that we... Can the things we observe at the high end relate back to these structures? Can we see them through through observations of it? Um, and how can we understand those? If that makes any this sense is, to anyone. This is like like <laughs> post, 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 post processual archaeology. <laughs> uh, well, I actually had a conversation with uh, Hodder at, at yeah. Chatterhook. He's like, what you are proposing is the new, new, new archaeology, isn't it? And I'm like, well, <laughs> kind of, I guess. Did you say that? Okay, yeah. Think, oh, man, I'm going to put that on my wall. <laughs> the new, new, new archaeology. <laughs> make sure you get enough news in there. So I think it's interesting that each one of you has a different goal coming out of the survey, because I guess I'm going into it. I, like, I'm super excited about it just because I'm a freaking nerd and I'm really excited about playing a game and like I really. Think that, that goes for all of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that that aspect of everybody's like, ooh, a game. OK. Uh, and just the concept of this game is phenomenal. I mean, there's we don't even have the time to talk about the nuances of No Man's Sky. But one of the things that there is, as Andrew hit on this earlier, everything is being generated. So you have, and nothing is the same. So we're all going to basically start off on or near a planet. Our chances of interacting with each other by pure chance are mathematically zero, basically. Because there's eight quadrillion planets out there or something crazy like that. So you basically get your own planet to kind of rove around on and get the feel for and, and you can learn about your planet. And I am interested to see how they are going to create past culture because they've talked a lot about how they put thought into the ruins that you may come across and the, uh, the, the abandoned artifacts that you may or may not find. But everything in this game, like Tara was saying, was created for a reason. And I'm really interested to see and to start putting them together and see what I can find out about these imaginary cultures that the game designers were considering. So I'm really looking forward yeah. to getting in there and these... looking at the actual artifacts and being reading them as if I were in the real world and going, ooh, what does this pot mean? It must be ceremonial. You know, that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't see the difference, and I've said this before, between real culture and virtual culture. I, I have a feeling that the cultures and the lore that we'll experience in this game, because they are created and generated and have, have purpose and interact, that there is no difference between treating that as a new and real culture um, than we do, say, if we studied the ancient Mayans. Yeah, I agree, because when you talk about culture, culture is all created. Culture all comes from something. Culture doesn't spring up full form 
out of the head of Zeus. It comes from somewhere. No, Megan, um, it comes from aliens. Well, obviously <laughs> aliens. Sorry, I had to. Um, yeah, so it, it comes from somewhere. So I don't, yeah, I agree with Andrew. I don't think that treating the culture in No Man's Sky as a categorical difference than the culture of classic period Maya is something we should do. I think they are the same thing. Um, and I think the fact that technologically we are merging so much more of our daily lives with the digital, we need to take into account that what we think of as culture now is more likely to be digital in the future than what we've studied as culture in the past. Tara, did you want to add anything? No, I, I think these two have, have very astutely covered uh, covered it all. No, I I agree with the. I read Andrew's argument on uh, there. There's no difference between real world culture and digital culture, and I saw you got a lot of kickback in the comments section. But I did actually agree with your overall argument because, like Megan was saying, all culture comes from somewhere, and as Tara has said, everything in the game is created for a reason. So even if it's imaginary, someone still sat down and thought about. Even if it was a lazy thought, they were still thinking about what is this item going to mean and what is that item going to mean and what yeah, will a building in this space mean versus a building in that space. And I think it will be interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what we're seeing is something hotter and others have been called entanglement also, where you've got everything kind of working together and building off of each other. And we don't know how the cultures will change over time as we play the game or as we go farther into the universe. Right. It'll be interesting, you know, uh, to see, you know, if there are multiple cultures on a particular planet. You may be one of the survey team members. They don't go anywhere else in the universe, but they just adopt their planet and they excavate the entire planet. Um, you know, that could take years uh, because it's planet-sized. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, everything, everything is interrelated, and it's no different than the real world because everything is interrelated. Um, and you're getting it dangerously close to a kind of theology that is integrated into into this kind of virtual space um, where you've got people you know looking for the creator here as it were um, and you're also you know taking a look uh, within a game space at working your way back into the deep structure of a game as Taro was saying to understand the mind of the creator as well it it's really interesting to see the crossover of artificial intelligence computer science philosophy theology and theology all space it kind of makes your head spin and you feel a little bit like Frank Herbert so I know one of the, we've got about a six minutes to wrap up here. I know one of the end goals of this survey is, Andrew, you want to get an academic paper out of it. And it sounds like both Tara and Megan could probably get their own papers out of this as well. So what is your, with these papers that you're hoping to present, what is the end goal of the overall paper? Like, not the data that you're going to put into the paper, but what's the reception that you're hoping to get out of these papers? Um I know that that you know with, with leading the team, we want to do a white paper a few months away, you know, which basically says here are our best practices. Um, we want to do maybe at the end of the first year a preliminary report after the first year of survey, and then a final report after three years of the survey. Whoever's left standing, um, you know, I plan to play this game for the rest of my life. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't know that I'll play any other game unless my kid wants me to sit down with her and play something. So, so you know, that's that, that's just. Uh, I would be able to publish a site report or a survey report um, side by side with uh, other reports of real spaces, you know, in a real archaeology journal that's peer reviewed and not some game studies journal or something like that. You know, I want to be able to publish in the SAA, you know, my site report next to somebody else's SAA site report of something else that they've actually walked around in and to have that kind of equivalence in the understanding of archaeology. That's that's, I think, my ultimate goal with this. Tara, what are you hoping to get out of this, and as your end product from the um, survey? Yeah, well, I guess like a lot of my a lot of my questions sort of get into the the theoretical area, which is that traditionally, like computing in archaeology has been seen very much on the kind of processual side of of what we do, uh, and I'm kind of interested in whether we can develop new theoretical kind of frameworks for understanding how post processualism and even post 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 whatever, however many posts you want to stick in there for socialism can, can actually work in the archaeological space using things like procedural generation, using things like um, regression and algorithm, how we can explain phenomena 
these different phases. So I guess, guess what I'm trying to look at is, is how, how we can use doing archaeology in a video game to explain or further or kind of come to grips with some of these problems that we've been like tearing apart and dealing with since the 70s and what space I guess there is for us to move into these and to capitalize on this media form and the way people produce in it in, in a new way and whether there's, there's valid applications for that uh, as archaeologists working on the ground as well as in games. Megan, what's your end goal here? Um, my goal is to prove that we can behave responsibly <laughs> if given a context where um, the things that make us not behave responsibly are removed and then show that that context that makes us not behave responsibly is really a very thin veneer and that we should all be doing better and be better archaeologists, be better communicators with the public. Uh, be better stewards of cultural heritage and indigenous heritage and um, all things that we say we're about, that we can do it better. So you're, you want to use this as a, as a way of looking at humanity, basically, and how humans do archaeology. Yeah, I mean, my, my whole... My whole, um, I guess, ethos when you come into archaeogaming is I'm interested in how it can be both a new form of practice and how the regular, you know, day-to-day dirt archaeologist can be influenced by this practice to do better science. That's interesting. I'm really interested to see how people think about culture and how that thought of culture is going to reflect into what they think should be generated as culture in the game. I think that was kind of convoluted, but, you know, people have this concept of ancient culture in their minds, and, and I interact with it a lot, especially with the fringe, and it's always fascinating to see what other people think ancient peoples were like, and I want to see how much of that is going to affect the artifacts and the spaces and the, the culture that's going to be considered ancient in the game. And are we going to find a bunch of stereotypical stuff? Are we going to find a bunch of Hollywood stuff? Are we going to find some very subtle nuanced stuff that would be more realistic to find? Is it going to be big and in my face? Is it going to be hard to look locate? You know, they've already talked about having an uh, alien writing in there that you can actually learn to read. So, it's, it's going to be fascinating to me to see how people are making basically a f fake, for lack of better sense of the word, culture that can also be treated as a real culture in the long run. So, all right, final thoughts. Anybody got one? Andrew? I'm just really excited to see all of this come together. I'm really excited that uh, we have this group of people who are interested in doing this kind of work and that we have this big project coming up um, and that there are people out there who think what we're doing has value. Yeah, I mean, seeing uh, uh, you know, news of the team and what we're going to do um, come out, you know, in uh, you know, places that are widely read like Kill Screen and, um, and other sites, and, and seeing the responses being overwhelmingly either positive or curious, um, as opposed to, you know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, you know, that's reassuring. It's very positive to me. And the fact that a lot of people have reached out over email and, and Twitter to, to say, you know, what can we do to help? And when will you be able to, to tell us some stuff and, and everything? And making all of our uh, all of our methods and, and procedures and tools as available as open access and open source as quickly as possible, I think, uh, is really expressing the goodwill of, of archaeology and archaeological science to the general public and inviting them along. It's, uh, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, people, people want to play. Your final thought? Yeah, I, I'm really just excited that that you know, having gone from being uh, basically shouted down when I first proposed this idea of of studying video games and and making video games for archaeology to be in a group of people are receptive and see this go out to the world. Andrew says, um, and for it to go public and to have great reception and great discourse with people in the public, I think is uh, it's really heartening, um, and I can't wait to see where it goes in the future. Well, we are launching, as I said, this brand new podcast called 8-Bit Test, Test Pit, and it's going to have a couple different components to it. So if our listeners have enjoyed this first episode, please stick around. We're going to follow the survey through this podcast, but at the same time, we're going to be addressing other aspects of Archeogaming 
as they come up. So if you think it's just going to be a No Man's Sky podcast, that's not what it's going to be. It's going to be an archaeogaming podcast. So we're going to be hitting a bunch of topics. And hopefully my panel today will be coming back on a regular basis to update us as we go. So thank you all for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share us with your social network. 8-Bit Test Pit is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or online at the Archaeology Podcast Network site. Be sure to comment and give us a like wherever you listen. And consider donating to the show and the network on our website, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 8-Bit Test Pit is produced by Sarah Head and Tristan Boyle. Music is provided by Tristan Boyle. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.